0: This morning will be in Acts 2, so please turn with me there. This is week two of what will hopefully be a five-part series called Getting to Know the Holy Spirit. Getting to Know the Holy Spirit as we jump into some key passages and places where the Lord revealed to us in His Word about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Our overview outline for this morning will essentially be, we'll just do a quick overview of Acts, and then we will jump into some specific observations from Acts 2. As with last week, I really, really want this to be a time where midway through you just feel like you can ask a question. Um, This is, yeah, we have an outline that we're working through, but it's ideally going to be something that we'll talk about as we go, Um, ask questions as we we go, and hopefully this is going to be something that produces clarity for all of us. And... Before we jump into the specifics of Acts 2 or Acts in general, I just wanted to ask an open question. What comes to mind when you think of the book of Acts? Well, throw some things out there. What comes to mind when you think of the book of Acts? Yes. Early church, Early church yes. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit yes. First martyr. First martyr, yeah. Yeah, Stephen, yep. What else? Early missions, yeah, kind of the, the blueprint for what it looks like for the church to be expanding. What else? Growth. So what? Growth. growth, yeah. Like, Are you thinking like personal growth or like church growth? Church. Cool, yep. What are some stories in the book that come to mind for those of you that have read it or heard teaching from Acts? What, is, what are some stories that you know are in the book of Acts? First Martyr was one of those shared, Stephen, yep. Ananias and Sapphira, yep, a, a great example of things going wrong. <laughs> Road to Damascus, Road to Damascus. What, stands, uh, what comes to mind about that? Paul's conversion, yes. What else? Tongues of, fire. Tongues of fire, yeah, that's what we'll be talking about today. <laughs> a lot in the book of Acts, a lot in the book of Acts. Some key features. In the book of Acts, Acts is the documentation of the early outworkings of Jesus' promise, promise in Matthew sixteen eighteen, and Paul's expression in Ephesians two nineteen through twenty two. So, I know I said turn to Acts two, but uh, with your finger in Acts two, take a look at Matthew sixteen eighteen. Really, this is what's being fulfilled throughout. The book of Acts, Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, Peter, I'm sorry, I tell you, you are Peter on this rock, the rock of the profession that he just made, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, in verse 16. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we see the outworking of the rock being the profession that Jesus Christ is the Son of the Living God, we see the church being built on that foundation throughout the book of Acts. And then also, Acts is an outworking of Peter's or Paul's expression in Ephesians two, nineteen through twenty-two. Ephesians two, nineteen through twenty-two. First person to get there, please read it out nice and loud for us. So then you are no longer strangers to aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Excellent. Thank you, Henry. Again, especially highlighting verse 20 there, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Acts 2 is establishing what the laying of that foundation looked like as the apostles were initially teaching. Obviously, that's happening throughout the whole New Testament, but especially um, in Acts. So Acts is the documentation of the early outworking of Jesus' promise. Its purpose is both historical, but it also serves an apologetic purpose. When Acts was written in around 60, 62-ish AD, this would have been about 30 years after what we're going to be reading about today took place, So that's 30 years, that's almost a generation later. The early church is provided by inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the book of Acts, is provided a a record that serves as an apologetic tool as people are making various accusations on all different sides about where the early church came from, what, what Christianity is about. Luke, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing a documentation that serves as apologetic. And that also has a very stabilizing function in the church. It's, it, it helps them to, to know where they came from, which helps them not be veered off in various directions. You could think almost of Acts as both serving as the birth certificate and also the baby journal of the early church. So with Christiana, we've, well, I should say, I should say we, Abby has been keeping a baby journal, jotting down different significant things that happened, significant moments in Christiana's life, like, wow, she rolled over, that's... Awesome, I mean, that is, that's a big achievement for, for us. We don't think of that that way, but in a similar way, much more significant way, Acts is documenting those early activities of the church, those early mile markers in the growth of the church, especially as the church expands from just a bunch of Jewish believers, the disciples that followed Christ to expanding into truly to the ends of the earth and to Gentile believers as they receive the gospel. And just a side note on this, as we think about history in general, history is a magnificently stabilizing force in our own lives also. I know for many of us, maybe studying history in school is not exactly uh, appreciated or enjoyed, but understanding history, especially um, the history of the church, history of Christianity, is very stabilizing. The proverbial pendulum is always swinging throughout church history. It's always going from one extreme to the other, it seems, And that's true both on a large scale church history, but even on local church history. So it helps us make wise application of scriptural principles to understand history, especially in the context of the present day. The Holy Spirit's inspiration of this book of history, Acts, is something that helps us recognize the priority that God places on us knowing where we came from. So we shouldn't take lightly the, the narrative and the story that's communicated in Acts. Acts is uniquely a book of transition. It's something that we have to be aware of as we read the book of Acts. It's a book of transition. It's filled with, consequently, as its narrative, which is story, it's filled with description, explaining things, description, which is different than prescription, telling us what to do. We know what prescription is. A doctor gives us a prescription, and we know that we're supposed to do something about that. It's telling you to do this. And a description is explaining what something is and what something was. And that's really important as we notice some distinctions between the book of Acts and other New Testament letters that are very clearly saying, do this, don't do this. Um, Imperatives are, are what fill those letters. The book of Acts is explaining something that absolutely informs the way we live and should have transformation in our lives, but it's not on every page telling us, do this, do this, do this. In the same way that when you read a baby journal, you don't read like, oh, Christiana rolled over. I should roll over. Okay, not, not necessarily exactly a parallel there, but it's important to recognize that that was a part of the early church. Make sense? Questions so far? Nothing too revolutionary so far, hopefully. So the outline of Acts, it's really found in Acts eight. Someone want to read Acts eight for us? Excellent, thank you, Micah. So there you have kind of part one in the book of Acts, witnesses to Jerusalem. Part two, witness to Judea and Samaria. And then part three, which is why you fill in the blanks, the witness to the ends of the earth. So that's really the progression that Acts follows in explaining explaining the, the early church and how it worked out what Jesus promised would happen in verse eight of chapter one. So question... Why is understanding the purpose of Acts important as we study individual passages within the book of Acts? Why is understanding the purpose of Acts important as we study individual passages in the book of Acts? Multiple right answers, so a lot of them out there. Helps with our interpretation, yeah. Yeah, to see the fulfillment of the promises. Yeah, exactly. What else? Any other ways that understanding the overall purpose helps us understand the specifics? I think it helps us understand what translates to our lives and what strictly remains as part of app stalking authority or what is contained in book facts but doesn't necessarily translate to us. Yeah. Yeah, good good example. Any other thoughts? What are some helpful ways to approach narrative portions of Scripture? Portions of Scripture just in general, not just Acts, where we're reading stories and narrative. Many of you that are doing a through the Bible in a year plan have just spent a significant amount of your... Mornings or evenings in narrative portions of Scripture, as you've gone through Genesis and perhaps Exodus. So, just in general, this is a significant portion of what God revealed to us is narrative. What are some helpful ways to approach narrative portions of Scripture? Some things you've found helpful. Yeah, Micah. Try to take them almost as literally as possible, although I don't think that that's exactly right. What do you mean by that? Well, I would like to treat like the narrative portions of Scripture as. Uh, yeah, absolutely. T- treat them as they were written, which is as actual accounts of history. Yes. Yeah. To do research on the context of the story yeah. Yeah. and what the society looked like at that, at that time. Yeah. What would that look like? How do you do that? Uh, commentaries and like looking up the Greek and who's roots and stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Google is our friend for a lot of those historical contexts. You hear Ur of the Chaldeans, and I mean, that's what Dr. Barnett brought in. That's an actual people, that's an actual place, that stuff happened there. There's artifacts that were produced in that time period that all inform our understanding. So yeah, doing, doing some of that historical background research and not necessarily reading a, a narrative and saying, um, nothing external to the text could help me but realizing that actually, yeah, looking at some of those other commentaries or whatever could be really helpful in understanding that, yeah. It's, it's helpful to understand human nature. like As you read it, these were actual people so you can relate them to yourself much more. Uh, rather than reading a description of God, hmm. you kind of have to take that in a broader sense. Yeah, that's a good connection. Anyone else? Ways that are Things that are helpful in approaching narrative portions of scripture. personal practices you do as you approach a story in the text. It kind of falls along with context, but I'm mm-hmm. just asking big questions. Who is this written to? When is this written? Yeah. What are some cautions when reading narrative portions of Scripture? To decipher the right and wrong in the situation, you What would be an example of where that could be a really problematic situation? A story from Scripture where you read it and think, "I should go do that." Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias and Sapphira great example. Yep. Any other examples that come to mind where you wouldn't want to just read a story and do it? Abraham and Isaac. Abraham and Isaac. <laughs> yeah. Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. Yep. Yeah. Numerous accounts from the life of David. Yep. So all of that should come into play as we approach narrative portions of Scripture and realize that we have to to realize the author wrote that for a reason, that the capital A author inspired that for a reason, and then we're approaching it accordingly and seeking to understand the the timeless truths that come out of the specific, happened within a specific time, original communication. So some observations from chapter 2 of Acts, kind of zooming in now to chapter 2 where we look at the context. The context is Pentecost. What was Pentecost? Pentecost was the second of three national Jewish festivals in Deuteronomy 16.16, which talks about those three festivals. Someone want to read Deuteronomy 16.16 for us? Yeah, and the festival of weeks is what we get Pentecost from. Penta means um, 50, basically, and then feast of weeks is what it was called there, which is a week of weeks, so seven sevens, 49, which would have been one day after that, which is when it was observed. You can read a couple verses ahead, or before that, in Deuteronomy 16, 9, you shall count seven weeks. This is right after Passover. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God and the tribute of free will offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. So this was one of one of the three feasts that included everyone from Jerusalem or everyone from Israel they all they all come together at and here it says at the point at the place that the Lord your God will choose which eventually became where the temple was which was Jerusalem to make his name dwell there so that's what's happening this is 49 plus 1 days after passover is when they celebrated that the 50th day after passover which is Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, and then that would have been 40 days that he was on earth after that and interacting with his disciples, communicating additional, additional things to the apostles, and then he ascended, and that was captured in Acts chapter 1. I highly recommend reading Acts chapter 1 later if you have any questions on that, but Acts chapter 1, verse 6 is where the ascension is. We already read one verse from that. And then Ten days later, they're still waiting for the, the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, which was promised by him in verse 8, which you already read. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, has come upon you. So they're waiting. It's been 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, 49 days after Jesus rose from the dead, 50 days after Passover. They're waiting and probably wondering when that will happen. Maybe there's some suspicion that Pentecost is a really significant day on our calendar. Maybe this will be the day. But there's not necessarily indication that they were necessarily expecting this to be the day, because it seems, as we will read from this passage, there was an element of they weren't expecting it. They were sitting down. They weren't in the, the typical posture of prayer for that day was standing or on, on your knees. So, um, the fact that they were sitting indicates that they weren't like in this, this prayerful mode of um, active expectation that's going to happen this, this moment. It's early in the morning when this happens. Um, all these things go into understanding what happens on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So, with that, we will read the first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2, which are really the, the preliminaries for the second part of this chapter, but we'll, we'll start in with verse 1. Acts 2, verse 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontius in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and the visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. The first thing that's noticed at at the coming of the Holy Spirit here is auditory confirmation, auditory confirmation that something has happened here. There's something that they all hear, something that they all hear so much so that the surrounding Jews hear that. I mean, uh, in our day and age, we may not be as surprised by the sound of an explosion. I mean, usually it still gets our attention, but we're familiar with um, natural gases and things that go boom. Less common in 33 AD, that there would be things that go kaboom. Essentially, that's the sort of sound that's articulated here. It's, it's different than um, the, the, the kind of the noise of a, a voice or a. there's different words for for it in Greek. One would be kind of like a sound or a noise or a voice, but then there's the different one used here that the ESV at least translates it as uh, lost it here. a sound like a mighty rushing wind. So it's like a earthquake-like sound or a, a boom, really. And that got their attention, but it served as auditory confirmation. Elsewhere, this, this word translated uh, mighty rushing wind in Luke twenty-one twenty-five is used as the roaring of the ocean. So just this loud roaring sound. So there's auditory confirmation that the Holy Spirit has come. Significant moment in church history. We talked a little bit last week about dispensations, the shift from one era to another. Jesus was with the disciples. Now he's not with the disciples, and now the Holy Spirit has come. Major era shift accompanied by auditory confirmation and then also visual confirmation, visual confirmation. This was tongues of fire above everyone. So seeing the, or hearing a boom, you think, okay, something has happened. But then seeing a visual confirmation indicates that not only has the Spirit have come, the Spirit come, the Spirit is actually resting on each of the individuals. The the 120 as documented in the above uh, verse 15 of chapter 1. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. The fact that tongues of fire are resting on each of them indicates that this isn't just a, I'm individually experiencing this as everyone else seeing this too, but everyone's able to equally corroborate something here has happened that's unique. We have auditory confirmation, we have visual confirmation, both indicating that all we're here filled with the Holy Spirit. So, what follows is immediate spirit-prompted proclamation. They began speaking in tongues as the Spirit gave the words. So, they hearing th- those that are surrounded, probably brought in by that loud sound again. They're hearing the truths of the gospel in their native language. Now, most of these Jews would have been from these various regions, as described, would have been familiar with going to synagogue weekly, would have been familiar with hearing the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, read to them in either Hebrew or Aramaic, which was kind of the same language group, a Semitic language, very similar sounding in many ways. They would have been familiar with hearing the mighty works of God in that language. They all knew that language and probably the the lingua Franca also of the day, Koine Greek. But they also knew the language that they grew up with, whatever region they were in. But what they hadn't heard in that language was the mighty works of God proclaimed in a prophetic context. They'd heard the works proclaimed to them in, again, Hebrew or Aramaic. But the fact that they're hearing the mighty works of God in their own native dialect is something new. The fact that they're gathered here for the Jewish feast of Pentecost indicates that they know what's going on. They're Jewish. So this was helpful for me in studying this, because I had always read this as they were hearing in their own language something that they otherwise couldn't have heard, they couldn't have understood. But understanding that they're they're here to celebrate a Jewish feast indicates that they're already familiar with everything that goes on in these yearly feasts. They're, They're already familiar with what's going on in their synagogues, which is Jewish synagogues. So God could have communicated to them in either Greek, which most people knew in that day, or Aramaic. But the fact that he reveals himself through the apostles in their own dialect serves a very specific purpose, and we'll get to that in a moment. So a quote from one commentator: Even though the languages spoken in the Spirit were understood by the crowd, Peter did not regard this as an evangelistic tool, but rather as a sign that needed to be explained. And that's why he takes the first part of his sermon to explain what's going on here. Charles Simeon, another commentator or preacher, says. The miracle itself was the enabling of the apostles without any previous study to speak with propriety and fluency whatever language was most familiar to their respective hearers and to communicate unerring information on the great subject of religion, which till that hour they very imperfectly understood, especially pertaining to Jesus Christ. So the crowd is gathered, likely because of the loud sound. I already mentioned that, but that's one of your blanks. Likely because of the loud sound. And that word here is, the word that for the fact that they were hearing them speaking in the, their own native dialect means this was an ongoing thing. So uh, it wasn't just a once and done. They heard, they heard the gospel in their own language, and then they're waiting. But it's an ongoing communication in their own native dialect. So anyways, why was this sign especially significant to dispersed Jews? Why was this so significant? We already touched on it a little bit. One is their linguistic background. So... These would have been Jews that were either born and raised in non-Palestinian cities, so not in like the region of Jerusalem and Israel, or converts to Judaism from these various countries. They would have been familiar with hearing the word of the Lord in Aramaic, but hearing the works of God declared in their own native language, this would have been a first. Perhaps conversations with their family members, but proclaimed with authority in their own language would have been unusual. So signs signify something. Signs signify something. When we, when we hear of a sign in Scripture, it means something. And the gift of tongues, as described here, is a sign, as revealed by Paul later, about 30 years later, when he writes 1 Corinthians. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 22. Acts and 1 Corinthians are the only places where tongues are explained. Acts and 1 Corinthians but as we look at 1 Corinthians 14 we get a very helpful piece to understanding the purpose of the gift of tongues especially as it pertains to the day of Pentecost and the preceding years that followed as the, the gift was still in operation in the early church. In 1 Corinthians 14:22 or 20 through 22 1 Corinthians 14:20 20 through 22 brothers Do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. What's the conclusion from this? Verse 22 Thus, therefore, thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. We don't have time, unfortunately, to look in the whole context of this passage. I hope to get to it in a couple of weeks as we look at spiritual gifts more broadly. But it's important to realize that Paul's emphasis is that the gift of tongues is a gift meant to be for non-believers. And specifically, he references Isaiah in verse 21. Isaiah 28 11 through 12. Isaiah 28, 11 through 12 connects the dots for us. Feel free to turn with me there or mark it. Uh, Isaiah 28, 11 through 12. Give me just a moment. This is the reference that Paul is making when he explains the sign of the gift of tongues. The only place that this sign is really explained in Scripture is this 1 Corinthians passage. And this is what Paul connects it to in Isaiah 28, 11 through 12. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. So the context in Isaiah, again, I wish we could unpack it entirely, is God has been communicating through the prophets, communicating through the prophets, communicating through the prophets. This is 700 years before what we're reading in Acts. And the people are hardening their hearts, hardening their hearts, hardening their hearts to what God is revealing. And he says in Isaiah, basically, fine then, one of the indications of the judgment that's coming is that they will be spoken to by a people of strange tongues, foreign tongues, foreign languages. People of strange lips with a foreign language, the Lord will speak to this people. In reference specifically there to when the Assyrian rulers will be instructing them and giving them commands. So the fact that God is going to communicate to them, is what Isaiah says, through a people of foreign tongues is a sign of judgment, is a sign of problem. It's a sign of we weren't listening to God's original messages and now we're going to be getting messages in a foreign language. So what Paul connects that to in 1 Corinthians 14 is saying it's a sign not for believers, but it's a sign of judgment that you are receiving the communication of God in a foreign language, not in the language which God typically communicated to his people. So that highlights the purpose of tongues, and it's one that we often overlook, but when we see that 1 Corinthians 14 passage, we we shouldn't overlook it. The purpose of tongues, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 14, Bible-reading Jews would have recognized here in Acts and throughout the early church, Bible-reading Jews would have recognized that God communicating to them in foreign languages was a sign of judgment. They had just crucified the Messiah, and God is revealing a mystery, the church age. The birth of the church, therefore, is triggered by the Jewish rejection of the Messiah. We could look at Romans 11 for a lot more understanding of that. So immediately now, the Jews are hearing the mighty works of God in foreign languages, languages familiar to them because of the dispersion, but languages not typical for how God sent his prophets. And that was a sign to them that they had just missed it. They had just missed it. They had missed God's original communication. So contrary to much teaching today, as a quote from MacArthur Study Bible, the purpose of the gift of languages was not the edification of believers. As noted above, they were a sign of judgment to unbelieving Israel showing that the church would encompass people from all nations and languages. The gift of languages was therefore a sign of the transition between the old and the new covenants, a transition completed nearly 2,000 years ago. So this sign that they're all hearing, they're hearing the mighty works of God in a language not their own, well, a language that is their own, but not the typical communication for God's prophets, produces a decision point. We see that decision point in verse 12 of chapter 2 of Acts still. So back to to Acts 2, verse 12. A decision point. They were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they're filled with new wine. They're already drunk. That's what's being accused. Interesting to note here, just to highlight, and something that maybe we are tempted to think that, oh, if we could just make someone see a miracle, they'd believe in Christ. If we could just make someone see something that's totally unexplainable rationally, they're going to put their faith in Christ. This passage highlights that's not the case. Miracles do not guarantee that someone will put their faith in Jesus. So this is a decision point and a point that either leads to belief or disbelief. So before we jump into Peter's sermon, which is an awesome sermon, the first Christian sermon, a couple of questions for all of us. Imagine being a Jew who was there on that day. And this is a question I actually want to hear some answers to. What is the first emotion that comes to mind when you think of witnessing this event? What's the first emotion that comes to mind? You've just seen what's unfolded. You're in awe, or what's what's the description? What are you feeling? Perplexed. Yes, that's that one's in the text. Yes, yeah, definitely. From the disciples' perspective, this is exciting and then some, yeah. Ten days is a long time to wait when you've been with the Messiah for three years and some change. Imagine a degree of discomfort. Yeah, flesh that out, why? Why? Yeah. Galileans were notorious for not being able to produce the guttural sounds in Hebrew, the ch, <laughs> So they were just like a bunch of like, they're guys, country guys that couldn't really speak sophisticatedly. They, sh- they could barely speak their own language, let alone speak all the languages that we're coming from. So the fact, that, yeah, they're hearing low men on the societal totem pole now authoritatively communicating God's truth in their own language. Talk about attention grabbing. Any other emotions that come to mind? What can we learn from the fact that some marveled while others scoffed? What does that teach us? Yeah. What else? How does the connection between the above verses, specifically looking at the uh, Isaiah 28 passage, 1 Corinthians 14, how does that help clarify the meaning of the gift of tongues? And I guess, does anyone have any questions to further clarify? Is that helpful connections to scenes? Is this old news, you've traced that before, or um, questions or points of additional comment on that, those connections? Maybe, maybe not. I think it was just the the observation from the end of twelve and thirteen that this has just happened. They've heard the mighty works of God proclaimed in their own languages, some were perplexed, some were mocking, so I think that's that was probably the only one I referenced. We talked about that a little bit last week with um John sixteen, how the Holy Spirit will convict the world of concerning sin, concerning righteousness and concerning judgment um yeah. So you said that right because they weren't believing in the Messiah so they they were basically up until now they'd been doing great for many of them this is the first festival they've come back to town for as as Anthony just highlighted and then they just realized that the Jewish people as a whole have crucified the Messiah which puts them distinctly in the category of non-believers and well actually that's that's going to be what's highlighted in Peter's sermon so it's almost like you're asking the question that all of them are asking which is wait, does this mean we're, we're not believers now or does this mean we're not followers of the Lord? And it's not so much that a sign in that Isaiah passage. The fact that they're hearing the languages means judgment has already happened. So like the, the fact that the Assyrians are already communicating to them in, in a language not their own indicates that, that that judgment has come. So in a sense, that's what the Jews are receiving in Acts 2 is the realization that that is happened not just that it will happen <clears throat> which is why Peter's sermon is very evangelistic and turn to the Lord and be saved so with that let's, let's take a look at Acts 2 14 through 47 I will read the entirety of it because it's I feel like I could say this about pretty much every chapter but it's one of the best chapters in scripture so so they've just received the accusation they're drunk Peter the one that hid the fact that he was a disciple of Christ from a slave girl. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, about 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Wow. That's a sermon. That's a way to kick off the growth of the church with the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is Peter's evangelistic sermon, and it is an expository sermon. We, we see in here a template that Christian preachers throughout history have followed, which is start with the text, explain the text, apply the text. He does that with multiple texts, three different texts, actually. But the first thing we see is a biblical defense of the Spirit's activity. A biblical defense of the Spirit's activity. Before he jumps into the, the, the call to repentance and the, the presentation of what's happened, he defends what they're seeing. First, he does so with a logical observation, basically by saying, and it might be humorous, it might be saying that, no, they're not drunk. This isn't the time of day that we get drunk. No, it's not exactly like that, but basically it's, it's humorous. It's saying this isn't when people get drunk. This, that's not logical then he spends the bulk of his time defending the Spirit's activity by explaining a prophetic anticipation and saying that Joel saw this coming. Joel saw this coming. Joel's prophecy in Joel 2, 28 through 32. Joel 2, 28 through 32. Uh, I think that's, that reference is in your notes, but if not, Joel 2, 28 through 32. Very important because that's the one Paul or Peter's going off of. I won't read it in its entirety because we basically just read it. It's very, very similar to what Joel or Peter quotes. But it's interesting, a couple things that uh, Peter highlights. He emphasizes that it's God who's speaking this. And it seems, although there's a number of things talked about in Joel's prophecy there, he's really highlighting the prophetic aspect of what's going on in that passage. Peter is using it, as a quote from MacArthur again, using it, he shows that, Mac- that Pentecost was a pre-fulfillment, a taste of what will happen in the millennial kingdom when the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. So a little bit of potential confusion here, and I want to linger on it. We're talking about near and far, near and far fulfillments of prophecy. Near and far fulfillments of prophecy. An example of some of the far fulfillments in this passage, especially highlighting the the verse 20 of chapter 2, Acts 2, 19 and 20 where he's quoting Joel and says, wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth, blood, fire, vapor, smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. This is the sort of imagery that's talked about in Revelation extensively and also in Matthew 24, 29 through 30. I'm going to read that briefly. Matthew 24, 29 through 30, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples He's talked about the signs of the end of the age, the abomination of desolation. And then in verse 29, Jesus is talking about his second coming. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So as with many Old Testament prophecies, multiple Old Testament prophecies, there are aspects that were fulfilled at the start, or you could say the inauguration of the last days, which is, we are in the last days. That's, That's the time period we are in, especially from the Old Testament prophecy perspective. At the coming of Christ, the first coming of the Messiah, begins the last days. What was not always crystal clear in the Old Testament was that the Messiah would come twice, and that aspects of his the the prophecy about him would be like, for example, one, the suffering servant, and then in other places he'd be the reigning king. These these two fulfillments happen both in a near and a far sense, all encompassed within the latter days. So Matthew twenty four, twenty nine through thirty highlights some of these at the end of the latter days. So some of these fulfillments at the start or the inauguration of the last days, some which will not be fulfilled until the end of the last days, or the Lord the day of the Lord. From the Old Testament prophets' perspective, we are in the last days, but the church, the church, that's us, is the great mystery that the Old Testament saints and prophets didn't f- have fully revealed to them. They, they understood, okay, Jesus is going to come back, well, not Jesus, Jesus is going to come, the Messiah is going to come, and entailed in that is going to be Him somehow atoning for our sins, paying for our guilt, being the, the perfect sacrifice but then also entailed is the, in that is going to be the fact that he's going to reign and rule and put all things under subjection. And there's going to be these cataclysmic end-of-the-world type signs. What was not revealed from their vantage point was that they're seeing one peak and another peak, but in between those two peaks is a valley, and that valley is the church age, the age in which we're in. Those, those peaks, from their perspective, were near to each other, but in between that is the era in which we are in, and that is what Peter is clearly communicating, this is, this is the last days we are in. This, this is right now, this is happening. Aspects of that have been fulfilled, aspects of that will be fulfilled, and there's no indication from them right now how long it will be until Jesus returns. So from their perspective, this is prepare for the sun to be turned to, to blood, uh, sun to be darkened, moon to blood, like next week. We don't know there's urgency because never did the Lord reveal the moment of his second coming. So with that, the the near fulfillment emphasis is that the Holy Spirit is poured out on all sorts of people. The 120 believers are representative of that and other believers that receive the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts. Um, And then also, as they prophesy, that's fulfilling the near term, which is indicated by the Spirit-inspired proclamation of God's mighty works in dozens of languages. So the prophetic gift is back. That's what everyone's seeing very clearly And he's highlighting that Joel prophesied prophecy would be back, the Spirit of the Lord would be poured out. But then the far fulfillment is that there will be wonders in heaven and on earth, moon and blood, sun, darkened, smoke, fire, etc. And then the Spirit of the Lord would be poured out on all flesh, truly all believers, which is unfolding throughout the book of Acts, but then ultimately will happen in the the day of the Lord with, uh, yeah, the final consummation of the Lord's kingdom. So, with that, we jump into. So, Peter's just defended what's happening, what you're observing, the prophecies are unfolding. And then in verse 22, kind of almost getting that out of the way, he now jumps into a biblical defense of Christ's messiahship. A biblical defense of Christ's messiahship. In essence, all of what we've talked about is merely the preliminary and the introduction to Peter's sermon. He's merely saying, yes, prophecy's back, and there's a reason for that. Something very, very important has happened. You need to hear it, and you need to respond to it. God himself has provided the attention-grabbing introduction to the sermon through a a loud noise that got everyone together, and then the the gift of tongues that came, which is, uh, again, grabbing attention. That's the starting illustration, is explaining that Old Testament connection. So Peter spent the first portion of his, his sermon explaining what that means, but then in verse 22, Peter turns to the meat of the sermon, you could say. in it is what we will conclude with. That's what we'll conclude with this morning. Peter uses two more key texts to communicate the gospel. So he's, he's referenced Joel 2 already. He's going to be looking at two more texts. The first is going to be an exposition of Psalms 16, 8 through 11. And then the second will be an exposition of Psalms 110, verse 1. We don't have time to fully unpack all that's entailed with those. But essentially, it's, it's referencing two accounts where David communicates aspects that some would think refer to potentially, maybe initially they thought that refers to David, but then Peter's highlighting, no, 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 no. David's not who's being talked about here. And he, he says almost humorously in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, he died, he was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. No, David is not the one that's going to be reigning forever. It is his descendants being referred to. So Peter's highlighting those familiar texts for all those present to realize all these things in the Old Testament, David, Joel, the prophets, everything's pointing towards this Messiah, the Messiah that they crucified. And then after unpacking these texts, these these scriptures for them, he highlights in verse 37 a call to respond. It's not enough to just hear that Jesus the Messiah has come. There's a call to respond. Peter tells them what to do in light of these things, how to live accordingly, what they must do to be saved. As with, Zach, your question, they were, they were realizing, okay, we've, apparently we've rejected the Messiah. The Messiah has been crucified by the Jews at the hands of lawless men, Romans, now what? Now what? Is there any is there any hope for us still, as God's people? Peter says, "Absolutely," and communicates how and a call to respond in thirty-seven through forty. And I want to close by looking at verses forty-one through forty-seven, and noticing the abundant response to the word of God. The abundant response to the word of God. It was the communication that followed this miraculous act. It was it was Scripture. Old Testament scripture and the New Testament inspired prophecy and preaching from Peter. It was a response to the word that triggered this, this response. So, notice it was the Old Testament scripture and apostolic teaching that they responded to. Verses 41 through 47. So, those who received his word were baptized and they were added, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So, what characterized the early church? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So that was the response and the outflow of God's word preached at the day of Pentecost. Any questions or comments as we conclude? I'll close our time in prayer in a moment, but any, any yeah, reflections on Peter's call to repentance in light of all that happened on Acts 2 at Pentecost. Everything's just crystal clear. No, nothing that needs to be communicated, clarified. Yeah, yeah. yeah the the mystery of the the church is something that all of us should be very, very thankful for and realizing God's, God's plan of folding in people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. It's a blessing, yeah. Is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for those early believers different than the receiving of the Spirit that we get at conversion? Um, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit would be the same, but the, the, the reception aspect was magnificently different in this context than what we would experience. The the auditory, the visual, and then the immediate miracles to authenticate what's happening. That's gonna be the distinction. The the fruit that the Spirit produces in our lives, and Lord willing, we'll talk about this next week, Jumping into a passage in Romans and talk about the Spirit-filled life, what it means to be filled by the Spirit. Um, Those would have been the same characteristics, but as far as the the miraculous gifts that were especially like a, just a beacon to the, the Jewish people to realize something big has happened, something big is starting, that would have been the difference. So, um, but as far as the, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit produces in the heart and life of a believer, those would have been, at, from this point on, the, the same. Just really the miraculous gifts are the, the only distinction that's specific for that, again, transition period in the book of Acts, going from Old Covenant to New Covenant, and then all the prophetic activity surrounding that moment. In the same way that uh, in the days of Moses before Pharaoh, communication along with that, signs and wonders. Elijah, communication, signs and wonders. And then Jesus and the apostles, communication accompanied by signs and wonders. Other questions? Questions? Um, yeah, millennial kingdom would be kind of when that would likely happen on truly all flesh, where it's like everyone, because after, after the final judgment, everyone believers. Um, but yeah, that would be the, the far fulfillment. The near fulfillment is that people from all sorts of places are receiving the Holy Spirit. I mean, here, uh, 3,000, so kind of representative of all flesh, but not everyone on earth is now indwelt by the Spirit, but I think the, the key far fulfillment of Joel would be those kind of cosmic signs um, with the, the moon changing colors and the sun being darkened and blood, smoke, fire. Those are very apocalyptic uh, languages. But again, from the perspective of Peter, he doesn't know how long of a time there's going to be between Jesus' first coming ascension and is it first coming ascension and we have like two weeks to get this news out to the Jews, and he's coming back, or is this going to be? I mean, obviously, it's at least two thousand years, almost two thousand years. So um, that's that's kind of the mystery: is that okay? We know the these near fulfillment, far fulfillment, and then there's this in between, and this in between is us. So other questions. I know this is a text with potential for great confusion, but hopefully, this has been helpful in thinking through the truly pivotal nature of this passage. This is a critical, critical text of Scripture. All right, Lord Willen, we'll jump into part three next week and hope to see you all um, tonight at, here at six, but then also at our house at 7.30 for a, a worship night. Let me close our time in prayer and thank the Lord for all he's given us. Heavenly Father, it is with great gratitude that we reflect on all that you've done for us in Christ. And we thank you for the mystery that is the church, the mystery that is your people drawn from every tribe, tongue, and nation to know you and worship you. We thank you, all of us here that know you, for the privilege and the blessing it is to have hearts softened and moldable to follow you. Lord, we ask that you would do that increasingly in our hearts, root out sin in our lives, and cause us to be more and more appropriately reflecting the image of Christ and appropriately communicating the good news to others. Lord, we recognize that in Acts, there is a marvelous unfolding of all that you did in laying the foundation through the apostles and the prophets. And we ask that you would help us to reflect on this birth certificate and baby journal, as it were, of the early church as a great encouragement in recognizing all that you've done to lay the foundation and also to establish the authority of your word, which is such a comfort and guide to us today. Help us to be living dependently on you as reflected by daily spending time in your word and seeking to know your will for our lives and act obediently and in accordance with it. Help us, as we continue in this series, to better understand all that you've revealed yourself to be as we look at various passages that reveal who you are to us in Christ and also the wonderfully comforting and uh, encouraging ministry of the Holy Spirit that we truly cannot live the Christian life without his ministry. So thank you, help us not to grieve the Holy Spirit in any sin or action against uh, him and what he is producing in our lives and in our hearts, but help us to be in step with the Spirit every day. We lift this day up to you, we ask that you be glorified and everything else that it holds, it's in Christ, and we pray. Amen.